God's word now and read from John chapter 17 and we'll read the whole of that chapter. If you're using one of these pew Bibles, it's page 1083. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is that you take them out of the world... Not, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Amen. Thanks, Steve. If ever there was a subject that was simultaneously so deep and so wide, it would have to be the glory of God. How can you do justice in uh, in one sermon to such a subject? Robert Garron was the son of a congregational minister 
who helped draft Australia's federal constitution. And he was appointed the secretary to the Attorney General's Department on the 1st of January 1901. And thus he became the first federal public servant. Now listen to the poem that Australia's first federal public servant wrote in 1901. He said this, Help us build a nation, a people proud and free, proud of our high vocation, humble, O Lord, to thee. A flame with high endeavour, though many paths be trod. Keep us ever, united ever, one people serving God. Our federal constitution begins with these words. Whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth. Just by way, um, I haven't neglected Western Australia there. They came into the Union a little bit later. But notice it says, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. That's part of our constitution. But how things have changed in the last 100 years or so. Like people in other Western democracies, most Australians have lost sight of God. And the biblical idea that human beings are made in the image of God and exist for his glory, along with all the comfort and dignity that comes with that. Like short-sighted Esau, we seem determined to trade our heritage of Bible-based ideals for a mess of human pottage with little or no concern for the consequences. Our effort to improve things consists of simply redoubling our efforts to strengthen our economy and initiate changes and reforms which we think will solve our problems, all without humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. At this point, certain biblical texts come to mind. Among them, Israel had no king in those days and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Seeking to be wise, they became fools. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. But today, 500 years after the Reformation, we can thank God that the Christ-exalting ideals and bedrock biblical convictions of the Reformers haven't been totally neglected. They aren't erased from our thinking. There are still people who've got a concept that God is on the throne and he is all-glorious and he is supreme and is to be worshipped and adored and served above all. Building on the work of the Reformers, some 220 years after the Reformation, Jonathan Edwards gave us his Bible-inspired vision of why God created the world. Now listen to this. All that is ever spoken of in the scripture as an ultimate end of God's works, end meaning purpose or goal, is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The light of his brilliance shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to the luminary. The beams of glory come from God 
and are something of God and are refunded back again to their original so that the whole is of God and in God and to God and God is the beginning, middle and end of it all. There's someone who had a concept of the majestic, all-encompassing glory of God. And with that one statement, Edward summarised the essence of Reformation theology to the glory of God. That theme, to the glory of God, is a way of summing up the net result of all the other solas that we're considering this month. The Bible alone teaches that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And Edwards understood from Scripture that to be created in the image of God is to be formed for his glory. When God made us in his image, he intended that we be those who reflect his glory. That's the purpose of being images of God. But nothing rankles sinful human nature more than to be told this or to hear we are not the masters of our own destiny, raising the idea that human beings are not designed to be the centre of the universe and cannot be the measure of all things will earn you a torrent of abuse on Twitter and Facebook and get you unfriended real fast. At the heart of rediscovering and treasuring the truth about the glory of God is the profound realisation that we are totally unfit to function independently of God. Even in the ideal world of Eden's garden, Adam and Eve were not created to function independently of God. And when they tried, literally all hell broke loose. And in the perfect world of the glorious new heavens and the new earth, we will not function independently of God. We were created in his image and we form for his glory and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in God. Glory to God was the theme of the angelic host announcing Jesus' birth to the shepherds in the field and of the heavenly throng whose songs John recorded in Revelation. What a privilege, almost beyond imagination, that all our majestic God, that our all-majestic God calls sinners like us to contemplate his glory and to echo the angels' chorus in our own worship. It's amazing. My goal today is to show from John 17 how important the glory of God was in Jesus' own life and ministry and how this can shape our lives and our ministries. But before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in utter dependence, humbly relying on you to open the eyes of our hearts to behold the treasures in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. I want to begin by asking, what is God's glory? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, the literal meaning of the word glory is heavy or weighty. 
The idea was then applied to a person's reputation. So if you had a a heavy or weighty reputation, it was quite formidable. It was quite something. It was substantial and therefore glorious. The Lonide, a Greek lexicon, defines doxa, which is the Greek word for glory, as to cause God to have glorious greatness, to make gloriously great, to magnify. And it cites John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jonathan Edwards describes what it means to glorify God this way. He said, God is glorified not only by his majesty being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see God's glory delight in it, God is more glorified than if they had only seen it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. So when we get a glimpse of something of the glory of God, that's good. But when we actually rejoice in and magnify the God whose glory we're coming to see, then we're glorifying God. We're refunding back to him something of his majesty, something of the praise that's due to his name. John 17 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, certainly one of the most treasured. Some refer to it as the holy of holies of sacred scripture because in John 17, it's like we're listeners overhearing Jesus at prayer with the Father. It's an intimate prayer. And the beginning of that prayer is all about their relationship and we're privileged to overhear the words that Jesus prayed. It's the revelation of the inner sanctum of Christ's heart as he bared his soul in prayer to the Father before he stepped out into the night and onto the cross. The highly influential reformer Philip Melanchthon said, there's no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. This chapter was read by the Scottish reformer John Knox every day during his final illness and in his final moments. Chapter 17's 26 verses have been the inspiration of massive works. Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, Thomas Manton, preached 45 sermons on this chapter. Don't worry, I'm just sticking to one. I'm going to make sure it doesn't go too long as well. Here before us is a sacred glimpse of Jesus at prayer. Think about it. For 33 years he lived in this world like an alien. He'd, he'd laid aside his glory in heaven. He'd laid aside the glory that he shared with the Father. His glory was veiled by flesh and blood. He took on human form. The Godhead took on human form. The Son of God became the Son of Man. And he lived amongst us in disguise, as it were. Remember, it took a transfiguration for the disciples to begin to see something of his glory and his garments were whiter than than could ever be made 
white by, by soap or, or any kind of human machine to make things clean and pure. They saw his glory and they wanted to, to bow down and worship him. This picture that we're being given in John chapter 17 about the glory of God is something that we need to take on board because in these final hours leading up to the cross, this is what was on the Messiah's heart. What was uppermost on his mind was that the Father be magnified. After Jesus said this, and what's... What, what has he just said? It's all the teaching that he's given from chapter 13, 14, 15, 16. He'd washed the disciples' feet in chapter 13. And he said, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this, then you should go and do likewise. And he set an example for them. And he, he, he taught them. And he, he was saying things to them that they needed to hear and to understand. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then here, after giving that teaching, that example, and talking about the instruction of the Holy Spirit, he goes to prayer. He bears his soul as he prepares his disciples for the hour of his departure. His death the next day on the cross. He's disappearing into heaven about 40 days after that. And he says, he looks toward heaven and he prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. This is what he was born for, the cross. John's gospel describes the cross as Jesus' glory, Jesus' glorification. His glory was accomplished on the cross. The Father's glory was manifest on the cross because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is to the glory of God. He says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Seven times in this chapter, Jesus talks about being, things being given from the Father to him. You have given them to me. They were yours and you gave them to me. And now I give them back to you. Who is the them? Who is he referring to? He's talking about people who have come to understand verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus' heart was taken up with the whole intention and purpose of the cross. It's like he's saying... Father, your manifold wisdom, your, the glory and splendour of your plan is, is beyond comprehension. And I want to participate in magnifying your name, in lifting high 
the glory and the dignity and the worth of who you are before all the world. And the way that would be done would be him dying on a cross. Dying on a cross. But if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to me, to myself, he said. And he's lifted up and the Father is glorified and that's all that mattered to Jesus. So he bears his soul and in so doing he's showing us what is at the heart of what we ought to be on about. The cross, the glory of God, the majesty of a God who so loved the world he gave his only son. So the next day his life mission would be complete and he would be on the cross and he would breathe his last saying, it is finished. And then a second phase would begin with his ascension to the Father's right hand when he would take up all authority in heaven and earth and begin to rule at the Father's right hand. So seven times in this chapter, Jesus speaks of believers as given by the Father. What is being given? People who will know God through Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what's on his heart. Recent political events might help us a little bit here, actually. I think we're all a little bit wiser these days about the fact that we can have um, dual citizenship. It's possible to be a citizen of two countries at once. And what we're also painfully aware about is that one of those citizenships has to take priority over the other. You cannot do justice to two citizenships. It's just like Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, you cannot serve New Zealand and Australia and be the Deputy Prime Minister. You, you, you cannot be a citizen of uh, you know, England and be on one nation as a senator. You, 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 you can't. But Jesus was a dual citizen. As a human being in this world, he was subject to Caesar. And he said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. But as the son of God, he knew what his priorities were. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. I do only those things my father tells me. Do you not understand that I must be about my father's business? He said that to his own mother at the age of 12 when he was off in the temple debating with the scribes. And she said, don't you realise that, that your father and I were worried about you? And Jesus said, don't you understand that I must be about my father's business? He knew what his priorities were. When anyone is born again from above, we too receive eternal life. And like Jesus, we become dual citizens. But our citizenship is in heaven, the citizenship that counts. If you want to renounce a citizenship, let it not be that citizenship. Renounce your Aussie citizenship. Renounce whatever other citizenship. But don't renounce the citizenship of heaven. Paul says, 
Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a citizen of the Roman Empire and at times he was able to appeal to that to advantage, to save a flogging. But when push came to shove, he was, if he was torn between the two, he desired to depart and be with Christ, which was far, far better. He too was torn with a, a tension of dual citizenship, desiring to stay and be with others and bless them, and yet to depart and be with the Lord, which is better by far. Can you relate to such competing desires? Do you experience within your heart the tug of heaven, the pull of the spirit bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, that your citizenship is in heaven, that the things unseen are what what is eternal, not the things that are seen, that the things that matter the most are the things that are to do with the glory of God, of the cross, of the gospel, of, of the kingdom of heaven. Can you identify with seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you as well? Can we relate to such competing desires? Because in this life, there's a mixture, isn't there? We experience the tension of it. There's certain priorities we have to fulfil to, to just be in this world. We have to obey the governing authorities. We have to submit plans to council. You have to go through due process. You, you have to do, do due diligence in a variety of circumstances to make sure that you fulfil all righteousness humanly. And yet, ultimately, it's what God thinks of what we do that counts the most. That's the citizenship that tugs on on the heart of a real believer. Do we have any sense of homesickness for the majestic glory of God? Jesus did. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. His his heart is being tugged back to where it really belonged, to the Father and the the glories of intimacy with God and, and knowing the fullness and the majesty of his person and seeing various aspects of it and admiring that and the two of them loving one another and sharing in unity together, one dwelling in the other, each dwelling in the other, that God might be magnified the more as a result. And the hour that's mentioned is the time of suffering. But he knew that in the suffering, if he endured the cross, despising its shame, for the joy that was set before him, he would endure. And what joy was that? To be reunited with the Father. And not just him reunited with the Father, but to bring with him the children that God had given him. These you have given me, I have kept them by your word. Not one of them is lost, except for that son of perdition, that son of punishment, Judas, who betrayed the Lord. So what was happening here 
was the hour that's being mentioned is, is the fulfilment of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. It was the prophetic fulfilment of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus was crushing Satan's head on the cross. History was in the making and it will set a glorious example for all the disciples. Jesus prays for the Father to glorify him with the glory they'd shared from eternity. Jesus' 33-year sojourn would conclude when he finished the work he'd come to do. His real citizenship would shine forth, the citizenship that counted. His heart's desire was that the Father would receive all the glory for this accomplishment. And the culmination of it would be the cross. No wonder Jesus told us, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. It's the way of the master. So having poured out his heart, having comprehended the plan, knowing why he'd come into the world to suffer and to die, he prays for God to anoint him to do that in such a way that greater glory and majesty would be given to God as a result. And then he prays for the disciples won't have time to go into all the detail of that, but simply just to say this. Jesus knew the disciples would need all the assistance of heaven for their forthcoming mission. Their minds and hearts would not be ready until the Holy Spirit had come upon them at Pentecost. So Jesus busied himself with praying for the success of their mission. He says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. He's praying for his disciples. And even after his resurrection, they still didn't get it, even though he'd prayed for them. Think of Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. Jesus tells us that the disciples failed to comprehend things. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his Glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You want to understand the glory of God? Make a beeline for the Son. Make a beeline for the cross, for Jesus Christ. There we see the glory of God on display. God manifests with skin on for all the world to see. And it took a while, but after Pentecost, the disciples cottoned on. With tremendous boldness, Peter would stand up on the day of Pentecost and declare, now this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days I'll pour out my spirit on all people. The prayer was being answered. 
After the Spirit came, the prayer was coming to its fulfilment and boldness entered into their bones and a willingness to speak out about without fear or favour suddenly took hold of Peter. The Peter who denied the Lord three times became the fearless, bold one. The glory of God. He'd said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I've given them your word. And so when that happens, Peter declares, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He understood the words. God opened his heart. And then Jesus prays for all believers, not just for for his disciples, but those who will believe on their message, a bit like us today. It's written down for us in the scriptures and we can believe that message and we can be saved. We can come to the knowledge of the truth. Having prayed in full assurance of faith for the disciples, Jesus now prays for people like you and me who will come to believe the gospel, that we will turn from sin and wickedness to live for him. The glory to come is only partially observable in this life. It takes... It takes a mighty work of the Spirit to take that veil off our hearts and to, and to adjust our eyes to the, to the brightness of the light and to start to see Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But when that glorious revelation of the glory of Christ starts to take hold of us, we can be beaten, we can be flogged, we can be pursued and we will not deny the Lord. If it takes hold of our soul, nothing is going to force us to to turn the other cheek and go the other way because we ought to obey God rather than man. We see that in the disciples. The glory to come is only partially observable in this life. We are a bit up and down, but it's the role of the Spirit to lead us into all the truth we're capable of knowing. Listen to this advice from Proverbs 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And Jesus was the living embodiment of that. He said, I have given them your words. Do you see it? Our whole reason for being in this world, our our life's calling in this world is to render visible the glory of God. To allow the rays that come from God to bounce off us and be reflected back to God in such a way that all can see and they take their eyes off us and they put their eyes where it it belongs on Christ. They see the majesty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay that the excellency of the power might be of God and not of us. We're being changed from one degree of glory to another by the Lord who is the Spirit. That's our purpose in life. 
when we come to God through the cross of Jesus Christ and cotton on to the fact that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do it to the glory of God, God is pleased. God receives the glory. And Jesus has prayed for this to be accomplished in our lives. Before we were born, he prayed for the success of this mission, that we would be turned from people who are indifferent to God to lovers of God, from people who don't really care at all about the glory of God like I described at the beginning about the average Aussie. God changes our hearts and he puts a new heart within us and a new spirit and we start to have desires and yearnings after God and we discover that our citizenship is in heaven because that's where our saviour is. That's where our treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Before you and I were born, Christ prayed for us. Does that mean anything? To think that Christ prayed for us? I pray for all those who will believe in me through their word. That includes us. Should anyone ask, who gives these sinners to this saviour? The father responds enthusiastically, I do. And the Holy Spirit is the witness at this marriage, signing it into our hearts. The spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That we become part of the bride, the bride of Christ, yearning and saying, even so, come Lord Jesus. If faith is the confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see, then living for the glory of God is the epitome of that. When we cotton on to the fact that it's not what we see here and now, but the the glory of the Son of God, that's what takes up our hearts. That's what occupies our minds. That's what we revolve over and over in our our thinking and we, we see from different angles and we grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and we say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we start to reflect back to God the purpose for which we were created, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Living for God's glory alone means we'll live and work for the sort of world that God would delight in. We seek to bring his transformation of all things in Christ to concrete expression in our own lives. Only the Lord is worthy to receive this glory and honour. In response to all we receive in Christ, let us dedicate our lives to him, just like Jesus did. Do we really believe that all that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The glory of God. I put it to you not as a theoretical question, but as a spiritual exercise to ponder and reflect on and chew over and, and find your nourishment honey from the honeycomb and and living water and bread of life for your soul that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of God the Father
Let's pray. Majestic God, we thank you for this truth that we are to live for your glory. We cannot do it in and of ourselves, but we thank you that the Master has done it for us with his suffering on the cross. And he knew that 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 sacrifice would be sufficient for all people for all time, for those who will believe in his name from every generation, from Eskimos to Sudanese to Bhutanese to Japanese to Alaskan Eskimos to whoever, to, to English, to Dutch, to German to Aussies and Kiwis and Americans and Guatemalans and Salvadorians. The world over, Lord, you have called people to the knowledge of yourself. And Father, we pray that we might be a church that cottons on to this vision and lives for the glory of God. Show us, Lord, how to bear witness to your name. We pray that the Introducing God course will will introduce people to the majesty and glory of you, the living and true God. That you will open hearts and eyes to behold the wonder of the Saviour. We pray that each of us, Lord, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we would do it to your glory. We'd have an eye for your majesty. That we would be willing to trace your fingerprints and handprints and handiwork in all that we do, knowing that we're prepared to do good works that you prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you, Father. Teach us these things. And we thank you that we have the backing of a Saviour who prayed for us on earth and who is praying for us from heaven, whoever lives to intercede for us. We thank you that your Holy Spirit dwells within us, the power of God transforming us from one degree of glory to another. So give us encouragement, Lord. Replace defeat and despair and discouragement with hope and joy and peace and love and show us the way of the Master that we might learn from him and live for your glory. In your name we pray.